When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The electrifying alt-rock band Fits in the Tantrums performs a special live stream concert today. I spoke with founder Michael Fitzpatrick about inventing the band's famous whistles and hand claps. Oh, please, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell me how you initially got bit by the music bug. You know, what what, what records were laying around the house, or were you, you know, what did your parents play? You know, that kind of thing. Well, I think for a lot of like a lot of other musicians, you're kind of just born with it in your bones. I mean. Much to my parents' chagrin, I probably drove them absolutely nuts. But from the second I was born, I never stopped singing in the house, driving everyone crazy on uh, road trips. But my parents are not musicians, but they are both uh, music lovers. My dad is a crazy classical music and opera fanatic, but where he listens to it at like volume 11 in the house, blaring, making these very dramatic scenes of classical music. And then uh, I had an older brother that turned me on to, uh, you know, some awesome new wave music, some classic rock, you know, uh, some hip hop. But, uh, you know, I went to, ended up going to a high school for the performing arts and was in a singing program there. So that's really where I kind of really dug into to my love of music. While you're exploring music, you also had an interest in experimental film, right? You studied that at the Cal Institute of Arts. Like, tell, tell me about that a little bit. Did, what, what stuff is that? Is that like Maya Darren or, you know, what, what What were you into? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, growing up in L.A., you, you, you kind of are forced to think, maybe I want to be in the movie business. Um, so I went to Cal Arts for filmmaking, not totally realizing that it was just like, it wasn't about Hollywood movie making. It was all very experimental uh, filmmaking like Stan Breckenridge and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you know what? It turned out to be uh, an awesome learning experience for me, you know, and has helped for me really to inform, you know, basically, you know, all of our music videos, all of our visual presentation of the band. It's it's uh it's really helped me in being able to craft what we want uh the band to look like in our videos and all that kind of stuff so and it also of course allowed you to meet your your band member James King how did that meeting happen you know describe it for me was it in a hallway was it in the classroom was it on the quad what was it uh well there's the the subterranean level where they do all the filmmaking and that's basically where all the the trouble and all the mischievous behavior hangs out uh, happens. So that's where <laughs> we originally met, and he's uh, such a, uh, a phenomenal multi instrumentalist. Obviously, first and foremost, plays every saxophone there is known to man. Uh, but such a talent. So when I was writing the first songs for Fits in the Tantrums, I knew I wanted to 
first record to really rely heavily on saxophone. And so I gave him a call and we started working up those first songs together. And then we were like, this is just begging to be played out live, you know? And, you know, when you're in bands over the course of your life, it can be really hard to find the right pairing of people with the right amount of talent, right kind of similar style and also commitment. Uh, and this was one of those magic moments as with so many parts of Fits in the Tantrums, which was like six phone calls. We were in a room. We played one song. I walked out of the room and I called uh, this little singer-songwriter club here in L.A. It's kind of well-known called the Hotel Cafe. Build a, uh, booked us a show a week later, walked in and said, we got a show next week. Everyone's like, we've played one song. And I was like, <laughs> it. It was just magic. I could tell it sounded like we'd been playing together for for years. We played that show a week later and kind of haven't stopped playing shows and touring since that day. And that's almost 11 years ago to the day. Wow. That's insane. That just one song and you get a booking. <laughs> um how do you how do you actually add Noel Skaggs? Because of course she is, you know, such a signature part of your guys' sound. But how did you how did that introduction happen? Well, James actually is the one because I said I we need an amazing female vocalist to counter me on these songs. Uh and he had ended uh, he had just done a, a hip hop tour with her. They were both hired guns on some big hip hop tour and had made a connection, so she was the first person he said we should call and uh and it just all worked, you know, not you don't know if your voices are going to blend well together. And it just worked instantaneously. And then anybody that's seen us play live knows that we really put on a super high-energy show. We're never standing there like wallflowers. It's like full tilt the whole time. And uh, Noel and I just really sort of saw that the more energy that we gave to the audience and to each other, the more we just sort of made this pressure cooker experience where the energy just in the club just got crazier and crazier. You, you guys really do. I know you guys, you know, one of your first big tours was when you were touring with Maroon 5. Is it true of the whole thing about this tattoo artist suggesting you guys to him while he was in there? I know. It all sounds like some made-up fairy tale, but it really is. And that was the thing, you know. I think for all of us, we had been in so many bands before, all had struggled, busting our butts, and could never really catch a break. For me personally, that was like almost 10 years of, like, abject rejection, total rejection from the music industry, from just having to guilt trip 10 people to come to our show. And there was just this magic that was really in combination with all this hard work we were doing. And we had played like six shows. We had released a little EP by ourselves. Somehow this tattoo artist was visiting from New York, picked up our CD, took it back to New York. Adam Levine walks in. And he says, Adam, you got to hear my new favorite band sits in the tantrums. He plays it. Adam freaks out. He starts tweeting about us. We start talking. A week later, we're performing in this little club here in L.A. Uh, that basically had couches all around the stage. And there was Adam Levine sitting five feet away from us. We performed. He gave us a high five and left. And then a day later, or two days later, we got the offer to open up for Maroon 5 on this huge college tour they were doing, which we were all losing our minds, like, oh, my God, this is amazing, until we realized, oh, this is going to cost us a lot of money 
to go <laughs> out on tour and keep up with these big tour buses, you know? And so everybody just dug deep. We almost went broke as a band and we just rallied and I put all my savings into the band and, uh, turned out to be one of the best decisions because that was the first thing that took us from a local band or regional band to being on a national level where we were just playing and people were early days of Facebook just saying like posting like, yo, I just saw this band. All my friends are coming to the Northeast soon. You got to go check them out. And it just spread like wildfire like that. Freaking awesome, man. Uh, you mentioned that little you know, that self-recorded EP you did. But then, of course, after that, you, you do your first official, you know, studio album, Picking Up the Pieces, 2010. Uh, when you look back at that, you know, what do you remember about that one in terms of either something, you know, you're you're very proud of as a, as a, you know, your first official album, or, or is there are there certain things that you look back, you know, you knowing the ins and outs where you're kind of like, we're still figuring things out a little bit there? I mean, you know, I think we'll, we'll always be incredibly proud of that record. You know, we made that record in my le- uh, in my living room for like $20, <laughs> literally. You know, just with one crappy old mic that we were all like one by one layering and overdubbing onto the record. And we made this record. It was this old mic that was fitting into, especially when we were on that first record, really leaning into like this mixture of pop and 60s soul with some hip hop, like 90s influence in there mixed in. And, uh, you know, that record, you know, is is what put us on the map. So, you know, I can never listen to it in, in any other way, but as the thing that, that made all of, our, of my dreams come true, you know? Absolutely. But then it was more than just a dream. <laughs> it's your second one. Um, and I know that's when you guys really blew up and, you know, became a household name, um, you know, with, with the walker. That thing was played all over the radio. Have you come up with that, that little whistling, you know, a little ditty in the beginning? That's, that's about as catchy of a earworm as it gets. <laughs> yeah, well, I had, uh, you know, I always, whenever I have two seconds free, I'm always trying to, like, start a little vibe, a little ditty. And I had gotten, God, I can't remember the name of this weird old vintage keyboard that had like a weird buzz to it. And it was so hard to record. I finally had to just literally put a microphone in front of its little built-in speaker. And I played this little keyboard line, had a little beat going, and then I just started whistling. And I went, (laughs) I was like, wait, that's, that's like annoyingly catchy. And so I recorded like 10 of me doing it. And that was actually before we had any lyrics, any melody. There was this little keyboard part, a beat, and this whistle. And I was just, I knew that that whistling was was going to be a thing that was going to annoy the crap out of everybody, but get stuck in their head. And so then we just tried to build a song around that. And uh, yeah, that turned out to be our second number one at Alternative Radio after we had done Out of My League. You know, it was the song that like kind of really went to a whole nother level. Absolutely. And so the walker has that catchy whistle. But then, of course, the next big one, hand clap, there's a clapping hand. You know, you're you're so good at taking just a simple thing, just burying it in our ears. I remember exactly, you know, because to me, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes artists make is they write a song and they think it's awesome. And I don't know if it's just I'm incredibly hard on myself or I have a massive fear of failure, but I have always tried to write as many songs as possible. 
Um, and, you know, when we wrote the More Than Just a Dream album, we had been coming off of the picking up the pieces success. We got off the road after touring for two years. We sat down, we wrote 40 songs in 30 days. Boom. There was Out of My League. There was The Walker. Get off another two plus years of touring that record and think, oh, it's going to be the same thing. And especially because we always want the records to evolve, didn't know exactly what we wanted uh, the third record to sound like. And those first six months were incredibly difficult. There was nothing that we were writing that was inspiring me. Everything I felt like was just not working. And I finally walked into my friend's studio, Sam Hollander, um, and I was just super frustrated. And I just said, oh, you know what? Tired of letting my brain get in the way. Just give me, like, the, the cheesiest horn sample you can give me. I was like, all right, now give me a, a crappy old drum beat. And I built a little drum beat, and I played this little bass line, and I started playing. And I was like, okay. And then Sam and I just looked at each other, and we just wrote that song in 15 minutes from start to finish. And about seven minutes into writing it, I knew that this was going to be the biggest song that we've ever had. And I laid down the vocals, my scratch track, and that scratch track of vocals is the version that's on the record that people have heard a gazillion times now. I tried five times to recreate it with a fancy, expensive mic in a fancy studio. I could never capture the same energy because I think there was so much elation and relief in knowing that I had the song that I could never capture that same energy back. You said seven seconds in, you knew, and you were absolutely right. Um, all right, well, bringing it sort of present, you know, with, with all the feels, your fourth and latest album. Um, at that point, you're not some struggling musician, or now you're massive and, you know, everybody knows you around the world. So was it harder putting that one together, or, or is it just kind of you can just sit back and relax a little bit and, and know that you can just let your creative juices flow at that point? Uh, no, you can never relax. I think, you know, <laughs> especially the bigger song you have, the more of this, like, albatross, this monkey on your back you have where then everybody at your label, everybody on your team, everyone is like, I don't know, is it hand clap though? I'm like, well, we didn't write hand clap to be hand clap, you know? So at a certain point, I just had to let all those expectations go and just make a record that we were proud of, that to me, honestly, I'm more proud of this record than anyone before, put so much heart into it, uh, you know? I feel like there's so many important messages uh, from dealing with stress and anxiety and depression uh, to wanting to feel more connected to your friends and your family and your loved one in this digital age where we're all staring at our phones 247, just really tried to put it all into a record that, to me, I couldn't be more proud of. You know, the title song from the whole album, All the Feels, you know, it's amazing, you know, playing it out every night and seeing people connect with it. You know, we have a song on the radio now called I Just Want to Shine, which to me that song's really about just dealing with stress and anxiety and your demons uh, and overcoming them, you know, and just wanting to put out these positive messages also while acknowledging that we're all human and there's a struggle for all of us every day, you know, to try and uh, keep your head above water. 
Um, and so to see the reaction from our fans, we've been touring it for like nine months now. It's been so exciting. DC has been such an amazing supporter of this band since day one. You know, we've done so many nights at the 930 Club. We've sold it out every single time we play at the Anthem, you know. So DC has just always been amazing. Uh, in closing, just sort of on like a, a little human note, I know you're, you know, you're a dad three times over now. Congrats. How did that change your life or, or even affected your music, maybe? I mean, it's, you know, the most radical thing from being like uh, an autonomous being to all of a sudden being responsible for uh, another human being. But, you know, for me, meeting my wife and us having kids, you know, was like at five years into this band, you know, with every dream coming true, you know, we were riding, ascending to a whole nother level with Out of My League and The Walker, and yet I was in one of the darkest places I had ever been because I think I had put all of my energy into reaching my goal, and then you reach your goal and you sometimes realize it doesn't do what you think it's going to do, and at the end of the day, you can't you can't hold your career and your success and spoon it at night, you know? And uh, I was feeling very detached from my world, from my friends, from my family, just because you're a traveling nomad, you're in a different city every day. It's a very bizarre lifestyle. Uh, so for me to meet my wife, Kaylee, and uh, have our kids and start a family, just it really saved me and grounded me and gave me more of a purpose than ever. Now it's harder with my kids older. You know, they know I'm leaving. They get really bummed out when I'm leaving, but try and bring them out on tour as many times as I can. We get our own tour bus and we're a traveling rock and roll family. So it's got its highs and its low, but, uh, you know, to me it's, it's meant everything and given me a, a whole new purpose for, for keeping going, you know. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. So congrats again. Michael Fitzpatrick, the Fitz in uh, Fitz in the Tantrum. You've been generous with your time. Thanks so much for calling in. We appreciate it. Thanks, brother. I'll see you guys soon. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.